Revelation chapter 2 and verses 8 to 11. Uh, We're studying this letter this evening, this short letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna. On the 23rd of January 1999, 58 year old Graham Staines, an Australian missionary, and his two sons, 10 year old Philip and 7 year old Timothy, were sleeping in a vehicle parked outside a local church in the Indian state of Orissa. For 20 years, Graham had conducted five-day jungle camps in the villages of Orissa, a state with a large population of Hindus, some of whom were becoming very radicalised. While Graham and his two sons were sleeping, some of these radical Hindus doused the vehicle with petrol and set it on fire. They then surrounded the vehicle to prevent Graham, Philip or Timothy from escaping. And as the vehicle burned, the mob danced and shouted, Justice has been done. The Christians have been cremated like Hindus. Graham and his two sons died in the flames. Graham was survived by his wife Gladys and their 13-year-old daughter Esther. Gladys said afterwards that rather than leave Orissa, she would continue to serve there. These people are my people, she said, and I hope to stay here. She also said, my husband loved Jesus Christ, who has taught us to forgive our enemies. And you might ask, how did she have the strength to respond like that to such a horrific experience? Well, Gladys, like her husband, had the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ in her life. And she knew that the risen Jesus has said to his followers, The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. One of the purposes of the book of Revelation, friends, perhaps the main purpose, is to change our perspective. It's one of the reasons I chose to preach from it uh, as I begin my ministry in Dremore. It helps us to see this world as it really is and to live our lives based on the reality of things as Jesus sees them from his throne in heaven. I saw a video last week of a popular YouTuber who has been colorblind his whole life and he was sent a special pair of newly designed glasses to correct colorblind vision. Standing outside on a bright sunny day, he was amazed at the difference that the glasses made. He said it was as though he had spent his whole life up until now looking at everything through a green tinted stained glass window. And the glasses had put everything, uh, they had had been a colour correction. They had put everything, allowed him to see everything as it really was. And that's what the book of Revelation does for us, friends, as Christians. It's what it did for Graham and Gladys Staines. It's what it does for persecuted Christians across the world today. It changes our perspective. It helps us to look at our world through the lenses that Jesus Christ provides for us. Of the seven churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation 2 to 3, five of them receive strong rebukes from Jesus. There are things in some of them that he's happy with. There are other things, as we saw with Ephesus last week, that Jesus is not happy with. Only two of the seven churches receive nothing but encouragement. Smyrna is the first of those two. And yet, as we'll see, Smyrna suffered perhaps the most. 
And whether we ever suffer in the way that the church in Smyrna did, or that many churches around the world today are, or whether we suffer in other ways, friends, we need to have the right perspective on our suffering. So notice, first of all, this evening from Jesus' words to Smyrna, Jesus knows about your suffering. Jesus knows about your suffering. Just look at the first two words of verse 9. I know. I know, Jesus says. (coughs) Jesus says this to each of the churches he writes to. And he says it to every church today. He, He knows and he sees everything that's happening to us. What was the city of Smyrna today is the city of Izmir. It's on the same site. Uh, It now has a population of 4.3 million people. It's the second largest city in Turkey. But it used to be called Smyrna. Smyrna was, in the days that Jesus wrote to them, it was another proud, bustling, popular uh, city. 35 miles up the road from Ephesus with a population of somewhere between 100 and 200,000 people. A huge city for its time. By all accounts, Smyrna was a beautiful city. It had paved streets, which was a luxury in the first century. It had a library and a gymnasium and a shrine to Homer, the great Greek writer who may have been born there. The pride of the city was reflected in a motto which they put on their coins. Smyrna, the first of Asia in beauty and size. The first of Asia. You might think, well, that sounds like a pretty nice place to live, doesn't it? Thriving city, plenty of work and culture, beautifully located on the shores of the Aegean Sea. But Smyrna was not an easy place to be a Christian. And Jesus mentions three different kinds of suffering that the church in Smyrna was experiencing. He mentions, first of all, their poverty. Verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Christians in Smyrna were becoming economically poor. Worship of the Roman Emperor, as in other places that we'll see in these letters, uh, it was becoming more and more fashionable and popular and increasingly expected by the Roman government. There were trade guilds in places like Smyrna, which were a little bit like trade unions today, except that part of paying into these guilds involved taking part in uh, ceremonies that included worship of the Roman emperor as a god. <coughs> and if you didn't take part in those ceremonies, the result quite, quite simply was that you lost your job and with it your reputation so that you couldn't get work anywhere else. The word Jesus uses there for poverty literally means to have absolutely nothing. Nothing. That's the situation that some believers in Smyrna were beginning to face. Jesus also says that the church in Smyrna is suffering slander. It's suffering slander. Verse 9, the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. That's incredibly strong language from our Lord Jesus. And... Obviously, there's great um, potential there for those words to be misunderstood. Uh, It's not, as some have tried to suggest, anti-Semitic language. 
anti-Jewish language. Let's remember that Jesus himself was a Jewish man. He was born to Jewish parents. He was circumcised. He was raised in the Jewish religion. In fact, he is the only Jewish person in history to keep the law of Moses perfectly. And the Bible is not an anti-Jewish book. How can it be when almost the whole Bible has been written by Jewish men? The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. So friends, these words do not mean that Jesus, the King and Saviour of the Jews, hated the Jews. But Jesus is saying that the Jews in Smyrna were Jews in name only. They were practising an empty religion and they were attacking God's true people. As Christianity spread across the Roman Empire, many ethnic Jews didn't like seeing some of their fellow Jews leave the synagogue and join the Christian church. Some of them began slandering Christians, making up lies about them, suggesting to the Roman authorities that the Christians were a threat to stability. And of course we know how Jesus was treated by Jewish religious leaders and how Paul the Apostle was treated uh, by Jewish religious leaders in the book of Acts. And so we can imagine what they were doing in Smyrna. These are people, friends, on the surface at least, who were very religious. Strictly keeping the Jewish Sabbath, strict about avoiding certain foods and who was allowed in their house. But Jesus sees beneath the surface And he sees that in these particular Jewish people, he sees the ugliness of Satan's hatred for the church in Smyrna. So the church faced poverty, they faced slander, and thirdly, they faced the prospect of death. They faced the prospect of death. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison, Jesus says. He says later in verse 10, be faithful unto death. In the Roman Empire, if you were put in prison, it usually meant that you were going to be put to death. It's very different from our prisons today, uh, which are full to bursting with people serving very long sentences. Uh, If you ended up in a Roman prison, you were probably going to die. And notice, friends, how Jesus says that it's the devil who's going to throw some of these believers in prison. It might be Jewish accusers who got them in trouble. It would be Roman judges who handed down the sentence. But behind them, Jesus says, it's Satan. Satan is mentioned five times in the seven letters to the churches. Five times out of seven letters. Friends, that should tell us something as the local church. We must never underestimate or ignore the role of Satan in opposing the church. We must never underestimate or ignore the role of Satan in opposing the church. The Bible shows us clearly how Satan, restrained and limited though he is, he has a certain amount of scope to tempt and pressure God's people. And Jesus tells the Smyrna church here, your greatest enemy is ultimately not the Jews, Or the Romans, it's Satan tempting and manipulating them into working against you. And because of Satan, they faced poverty, they faced slander, they faced the prospect of death. 
And that all sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? And of course the fact is that it's still happening across the world today, perhaps on a greater scale than ever before. According to one Christian organization, 65% of all Christian martyrdom has taken place since the turn of the 20th century. So out of all the Christian martyrs that have ever died for their faith, 65% of them have been since 1900. You read what's happening today in China, North Africa, the Far East. It's astonishing some of it. It's hard to believe that it, that it goes on unchecked and most of the time unreported by the mainstream media. Christians facing economic ruin. Christians being rounded up en masse, kidnapped, brutalized, tortured women being raped. Christians being killed by their Muslim or Hindu or communist neighbors. Christian men, women and children being slaughtered. And we are spared a huge amount of that in Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom, thankfully. But in subtle ways, friends, the pressure is growing here too. Within the last year, new rules in the Northern Ireland Civil Service mean that staff must refer to transgender individuals by their preferred pronouns or risk being cited for hate speech. Some of you might face pressure in your office to take the shortcuts or sign off on the policies that everyone else does, but which are not honouring to Christ. Rosaria Butterfield, many of you will have heard of her. If you haven't, look her up, read her books, listen to her talks online. Uh, She spoke in Northern Ireland a couple of years ago and she said, Christians are going to have to develop a theology of getting fired. Christians are going to have to develop a theology of getting fired. Have you ever thought about that? Have you thought through the implications of what would come with that? Have you thought through the scenarios that might lead to that? And which in some cases you might have no choice but to get sacked. Some of us pastors might have to be prepared for Satan to arrange for our imprisonment for being faithful to Jesus. Whatever we are called to face, friends, we need to remember Jesus' words to Smyrna. I know. I know. I know your tribulations. I know about your poverty. I know about the lies being told about you. I know that some of you even are facing the prospect of death. Sometimes people say, I know how you feel, and we don't really think they do. They're trying to find something to say. That's not the case with Jesus. When Jesus says, I know your poverty, he speaks as the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8 9. He speaks as the one who had all kinds of lies and accusations made about him, that he was a drunkard and a glutton and demon possessed, even though he was entirely without sin he speaks as the one who was imprisoned and condemned to death even death on a cross having been guilty of nothing friends whatever kind of suffering you face be it persecution or anything else Jesus knows and Jesus cares let's never forget that we have a saviour who knows who has been there Who will, he's not some he's not some callous God who's getting us to jump through hoops that he has never jumped through himself (coughs) 
He has gone through everything and worse that we can possibly face. He knows and he cares. But secondly, not only does Jesus know about your suffering, Jesus is in control of your suffering. Jesus is in control of your suffering. Jesus comforts the Smyrna church by emphasizing the sovereign control that he has over everything that they're facing. Look at the way Jesus describes himself in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Each of the seven letters, as I alluded to earlier, they all refer back to the vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Jesus picks out something from that vision that applies to each of the churches. And for Smyrna, he reminds them that he is the first and the last. It's a description, friends, that emphasizes his control. He had the first word in human history. He will have the last word in human history. He's in control of everything in between. And this would have resonated, wouldn't it, with the people in Smyrna? Because remember what I told you was written on their coins. First in Asia. Well, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. No one is ahead of Jesus in any category. The residents of Smyrna were particularly proud of how their city had been rebuilt hundreds of years before the city had been destroyed in an invasion and it had come back. Well, Jesus says, I'm the one who died and came back to life. So you see how Jesus, friends, is comforting and reassuring the Smyrna church that he, not anybody in their city, but he is in total control. Yes, he tells them in verse 10 that Satan is going to throw them and some of them in prison. Imagine hearing that, by the way, read out in your church. Satan is going to get the chance to throw some of you in prison. <clears throat> but notice how Jesus describes the purpose of this imprisonment. Verse 10. That you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So Jesus says there's a purpose in this. Yes, you're going to be tested But you're going to come out the better for it. Where else in the Bible do we see God's people tested for 10 days? Put under pressure for 10 days? Well that's why we read earlier from Daniel chapter 1. You remember how Daniel and his friends. They they didn't want to eat the food of the king. That was a sign in that culture. If you ate with the king. If you ate what the king ate. It was a sign that you, you had no problems with him. There was no difference between you. You were... You were in league together. You believed all the same things. Daniel and his friends didn't want to give that impression. And so they ate vegetables and drank water for 10 days. And they came through it and the test was over. And friends, Jesus is emphasizing here to the Smyrna church. Your suffering is not indefinite. It's not just going to go on and on without an end point. It will come to an end. That's what Jesus is saying here. Ten is one of the numbers that we'll see several times in Revelation. And which we find in various prophecies in the Bible. It's, it's a symbolic number as most numbers in Revelation are. It's symbolic and significant. Sorry, it's a, it's a symbol for a significant amount of time. A 
significant amount of time, a set amount of time. Jesus probably wasn't talking about 10 literal days here. Rather, he's saying that he knew when this trial would start and he knew when it would end and it would not go on forever. Hasn't one of the great frustrations of lockdown been that we just don't know when it will end? Especially in Northern Ireland because they're not putting, they don't want to attach any dates at all to the, the pathway out of lockdown. It's one of the main reasons it's been such a test of patience. We just don't know. Sometimes you think, well, I can throw it if I know that when it's going to end. Well, Jesus tells the church, I'm in full control of everything that's happening and it will come to an end. It's a test of faith, but it's a test that will eventually be over. Christian loved ones, whatever kind of suffering we face, we can be assured that there is a purpose in it, whether we see that purpose or not. James chapter 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is purpose in it. We must guard against the temptation to believe, friends, that there can be no good purpose in any discomfort or inconvenience or suffering we face. We live in a society largely driven by convenience. In a world of one-day deliveries, everything is fast and easy and hassle-free. Some hassle, uh, some of that has been disrupted this past year, but nonetheless, much of it remains. And so the temptation for us is to believe that when something isn't fast and easy and hassle-free, there can be nothing good about it. Well, that's an attitude totally at odds with the teaching of the New Testament and the experience of the Christian church over 2,000 years. Jesus is in control of our suffering, whatever form that suffering takes. And Jesus has purposes in our suffering, in our testing. Good can come from it, even if we don't always see it. The greatest suffering anyone has ever endured was the physical and spiritual suffering that Jesus endured on the cross. And yet through that suffering... The greatest ever blessings have been secured for the greatest number of people in the history of the world. Friends, when we're tempted to think that Jesus has abandoned us in our ill health, abandoned us in our loneliness, in our depression, in our persecution, we only need to go again to the cross where the King of glory died alone in our place our sins we only need to hear him say I know I am the first and the last who died and came to life we meditate upon that we draw strength from that we pray to our father on the basis of that and we will be able to endure the tests and trials and sufferings that will come for being faithful to Jesus so Jesus knows about your suffering Jesus is in control of your suffering. And thirdly and finally this evening, Jesus promises an end to your suffering. 
Jesus promises an end to your suffering. Look at the very end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. In the Olympic Games of those days, the competitors were given a floral wreath, a crown of flowers as their reward. But of course the flowers would soon wither and die and it's not much of a reward when you think about it. Uh, But Jesus says for those who run the race of faith, eternal life is the reward. The crown is life. Life free of all these sufferings and painful trials. Life with Christ in his kingdom. In that paradise that we thought about this morning. Jesus also promises in verse 11. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. People in our nation today are worried about the wrong death. They're worried about a possible death from COVID or cancer or from all kinds of other things. They're worried about something that is totally out of their hands and which, unless the Lord Jesus returns first, is inevitable in some form. There's nothing we can do about it. They should be worried about the second death, the judgment that comes after life on this earth, eternal separation from God and his presence, just as Adam and Eve experienced in some measure when they were banished from Eden. A far worse banishment is in store for any who refuse to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, eternal punishment for our sin. We will die physically unless Christ returns. We can't do anything about that. But there is something to be done, friends, about the second death. We can repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died and who came to life. Trusting in Jesus won't solve all of our immediate problems. In fact, trusting in Jesus might give us a whole set of new problems as it had done for the believers in Smyrna. But we face those things knowing that far better lies ahead. An eternal reward that can never be taken from us. Just like putting on those special glasses, trusting in Jesus changes our perspective. We may become poor on earth. We know that we are rich in heavenly treasure. We may have lies told about us in human courtrooms. We know that the truth has been spoken about us in the courtroom of heaven, the one that really matters. We may be thrown into prison on earth. We know that in the new heavens and new earth, we will sit on thrones. I wonder, do we need our perspective changed this evening? Do we need to stop getting so anxious and angry about our news or social media headlines? Do we need to lose some of our fear of human opinion and develop more of a fear of God? Do we need to trust the Lord Jesus to sustain us through today's suffering as we look forward to the glory of tomorrow, eternity? I mentioned last week when we looked at Ephesus that there is no church in Ephesus anymore. In fact, the whole city of Ephesus is essentially gone. It's an archaeological site. 
Jesus had warned the Ephesian church that if they did not repent, he would remove them from their lampstand, and eventually he did. But that's not what happened in Smyrna. By God's grace, 2,000 years later, there are still churches in modern-day Smyrna, the city of Izmir, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are very, very few Christians in the vast land of Turkey, but there are Christians in Izmir. There are churches in Izmir to this very day. They suffered from the slander of the Jews in John's day. They suffered from the rise of Islam over the centuries after that. They continue to suffer from the influence of secularism and of empty so-called Christian religion in some denominations in Turkey today. But friends, the Christians in Smyrna are still there. They're still witnessing faithfully, even in the midst of suffering, 2,000 years later. And for them, and for all of us, who remain faithful even unto death, the crown of eternal life is our reward. A few decades after this letter was written, one of the leaders of the Smyrna church demonstrated what it means to be faithful unto death for Jesus. His name was Polycarp. He had been a disciple of the Apostle John and a respected preacher and pastor. But in in 155 AD, at the age of 86, he was arrested for refusing to worship the Roman Emperor as a god. He was quickly tried and sentenced to death. Before he died, the Roman proconsul gave Polycarp one last chance. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, take the oath and I shall release you. Curse Christ. The Bishop of Smyrna replied, 86 years I have served him and he never did me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Soon afterwards, Polycarp was burned at the stake and then stabbed to death. But he died with the right perspective, just like Graham Staines many years later. Stripped of all his wealth on earth, Polycarp entered into a life of riches in heaven. Slandered and hated on earth, he heard, Well done, good and faithful servant, when he arrived in heaven. Imprisoned by Satan on earth, Polycarp was set free by his Saviour in heaven to enjoy everlasting life with Christ. And so, friends, like Polycarp, And like Jesus tells us here, let's keep the right perspective. Let's remember that the world is not our home, that if it hated Jesus, it will hate us too. And that the one who died and was raised to life, the first and the last, he can give us everlasting life, even if we suffer for a little while now for him. Amen.